Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that we are blessed to be in your presence. And now, Lord, we ask that you would come and bring peace upon this room in Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray that as we journey into your word, we would journey with an overwhelming sense of peace, with our eyes and our ears open to see and to hear what it is that you are speaking to each and every one of us. Minister to us, minister into the life of this church. And may there be anointing upon the preaching and the hearing of your word. And may all of this be to your glory, because it is all about you. So come and have your way in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are rounding off our kind of time, kind of looking around the Easter story before next week, God willing, all going well. We're going to steer back into our confidence series, looking through the book of Luke. So this morning, if you have your Bible, we're going to jump into John chapter 20, and we're going to read from verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The last couple of Sundays, we have been hanging out in the last couple of chapters of John's gospel. And there's a lot going on there. Here's what's been happening in the story of Jesus' resurrection so far. Jesus has appeared to the disciples. We find them in verse 19 in a locked room with the doors closed and locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus just turns up in the middle of that locked room and appears to them risen from the dead. He confronts their fear with peace. He releases peace to them. Peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his sight, the peace that he purchased on the cross of Calvary. He releases joy within them. It says they were overjoyed when they saw him. He announced his purpose to them and commissions them to go and to run with the gospel that they are being sent as he was sent by the Father. And he breathes on them and imparts something of the Holy Spirit to them. Now, all of that took place within the moment when Jesus appeared standing in the middle of a locked room. And as we recap on that and we list it, as they kind of list the specifics of what took place. But when we look at it in the kind of big picture, the general strokes, there is loads going on in this moment. The disciples have received a revelation of Jesus. They have glimpsed evidence of salvation. They've experienced deep transformative ministry in their very souls. They've been envisioned and empowered with purpose. And all of that took place in one encounter which shows that truly just one moment in his presence has the power to change everything. Now we list all of that out and as we turn into the passage that we're looking at today, we are told that Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now Thomas is always affectionately known as Doubting Thomas. 
Whenever we reference him, whenever we talk about him, whenever we label him, we never refer to him as Thomas, also known as Didymus. We always refer to him as Doubting Thomas. This is what he's affectionately known as. When we read references to him, albeit there's not very many in the Gospels, but when we read the few references to him, we instantly in our minds think of Doubting Thomas. But before we steer into and charge into Thomas the Doubter, we actually have to spend a little bit of time commenting on Thomas the Absenter. Because Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He was absent. And the first question that enters our minds is why? Where was Thomas? Why was Thomas absent when all of the rest of the disciples were present? Why was he not there? And there's a couple of possible reasons. I'm going to give you three possible reasons as to why Thomas wasn't there. You might think of others, but here's three. The first obvious one is fear. We're told in verse 19 that the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So the first place that we arrive at, the logical conclusion we come to, and the question that we initially ask is, was it fear that removed Thomas from the group. Fear of being seen with the disciples, fear of being associated with the disciples, kind of guilt by association, fear of being persecuted like Jesus had been persecuted because he's hanging out with Jesus' mates. Was it fear that gripped Thomas and removed him from their gathering, caused them to be absent? Another possible reason is the subject we looked at last week. Was it grief? Could it be that Thomas's grief has him absent from the group? Did he just need a little bit of time to himself? Previous mentions of Thomas, albeit, as we said, incredibly brief, would suggest to us that Thomas was close to Jesus. He possessed an incredible love for him, and he was an all-or-nothing kind of guy. So I could imagine that Jesus' death would have hit him quite hard. He'd given up his whole life for Jesus. He'd given up everything to follow this guy, to be part of his cause, to be part of his ministry, to be part of his kingdom, but now the hero of the hour is dead. His whole vision, his whole purpose died when Jesus died. His whole life map and life journey just dissolved and disintegrated before him. He's going to give everything up. He's going to follow this guy. This is the map. This is the journey for the rest of his days. And then Jesus goes and dies and that whole life journey and map just dissolves. Maybe he needed a bit of time to process that, to process grief. Or maybe we're just overthinking it. Maybe the reason why Thomas was absent was none of these big emotional reasons. Maybe it was neither fear and neither grief. Maybe it was just choice. Just didn't want to be there. Didn't want to be in that moment didn't want to be with those people. Ever get those moments where you're like, I just don't want to be with those people right now. Please don't say yes and leave. But <laughs> you know where you're kind of like, I just don't want to be in that environment. I just don't want to be amongst those people. Maybe it was just choice. Maybe it had other things to do. There are many possible reasons why he was absent. Three logical conclusions. Fear kept him away from the rest. His grief kept him away from the disciples, or his choice kept him away from the group. Whatever the reason, his absence meant that he missed out. He missed out 
on a revelation of Jesus. He missed out on a glimpse of the evidence of salvation. He missed out on the experience of deep ministry within his soul. He missed out on being envisioned and empowered with purpose. In short, in being absent from the gathering of God's people, he missed out on what God was doing at that time. Now this chapter of John's gospel is one that is incredibly profound because it shows Jesus interacting with the disciples following the resurrection. Now, in theological circles, we refer to this as a typology. It is a typology of the church. It is an example, it is a type of the church. This is the resurrected Jesus interacting with his disciples, interacting with his believers. This is an example of what this is now going to look like living in the age of the resurrection of Christ. So this is a glimpse of how things are meant to be. And we look at this and we read these chapters, John 20, John 21, and the chapters and the other gospels that talk about what happened after the resurrection. And we look at them just as part of the Easter story. But actually, God reveals so much. He's beginning to show us how things are going to be in the age of the risen Christ. And here's what happens. He turns up first to Mary Magdalene. She's grieving in the garden. And he comforts her in her grief. And Mary returns with the news of the risen Lord to the disciples and she says to them, I've seen the Lord. And then what happens is that Jesus turns up to all the other disciples, all the other disciples bar Thomas. And they turn around and announce to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Now notice the repetition of the phrase here. I've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord, says Mary, we've seen the Lord, says the group of the disciples. I and we. The Lord turned up to I and we. Jesus was experienced by I and we. The setting and the context is important and it's reflected in the language, I and we, singular and plural, individual and group, personal and corporate. Here is the way that things are meant to be. Here in John's gospel, God gives us a glimpse of his plan and a glimpse of his purpose and his purpose is I and we. He turns up risen from the dead and he brings an individual into an experience of his reality. I've seen the Lord, she says. And then he turns up to a whole group of people and he brings that entire group into an experience of his reality. We've seen the Lord, they say. This is the model of things to come. This is the dynamic of faith and the experience of those that lay claim to it. As individuals, we are supposed to pursue an experience of God, a personal, unique relationship and encounter with Jesus Christ. We are to live with that as a definition of our being and to live with it as a definition of who we are. We are to live in and with an individual, unique encounter, experience, and relationship with Jesus. There is an encounter and experience, a relationship with Jesus to be had that only you can have. It's experience with him that nobody else can have but you. It is your individual, unique experience and relationship. However, God also intended that we experience him in community. 
that we explore the dimensions of a corporate experience of him. His plan and his design is that we glimpse the truths of salvation. We experience revelations of him. We receive deep ministry of him in our souls. That we become envisioned and empowered with purpose through the gathered moments of his people. He intends to bring us into meaningful and real encounters with himself within the group dynamic. He intends to do it through the church. And here are the two dimensions then of the Christian experience, personal and corporate. And by corporate, we don't mean business and companies and sales and money. We mean group, we mean family, we mean community. Our faith experience is to have us outworking in I and we moments and through I and we encounters. It's meant to be outworked individually through the personal, individual decision to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, through the personal, individual process of reading his word, praying, living out what we're experiencing in our individual lives and on our individual pathways. We are to individually and personally walk in a unique relationship with him, but we are to deepen and strengthen that relationship by walking alongside others by placing ourselves within gathered moments of God's people. We're to outwork our faith as part of the church. And I think this story of Thomas is present in the scripture for a number of reasons. It teaches us quite a lot. And one of the things it teaches us and one of the reasons that I think it's present in scripture is to warn us of the dangers of removing ourselves from the fellowship of believers. Now there can be many legitimate reasons as to why at times we can be absent from the gathering of God's people, just like we've outlined for Thomas. In fact, some of the possible reasons that we outline for Thomas are actual reasons as to why at times we are actually absent from the gathering of God's people from church. Sometimes fear can be a big factor. And certainly irrational fears can limit us from connecting with people in general, let alone coming into an environment like this in the church. But there are other fears that we face that can hinder us from connecting. And sometimes it's not things that we'd necessarily class as fears. It's not that they operate at a phobia level, but the truth is they're still fears. Fears of not fitting in, fears of being left out, fears of no one talking to us, fears of not being good enough, fear of being found out, fear of what goes on in the service, (laughs) case in point. Fear and things going a little bit wacky and crazy and spiritual and we're not really sure if we're okay with that. Fear of doing something wrong. Sometimes fear can play a part and has been absent from the gathering of God's people. Sometimes grief can too. Naturally, the loss of a loved one can play a huge part in in that, particularly if they played a huge part in our faith journey or in our church attendance. But we also find that we experience that moment after losing those close to us where we're trying to figure out who we are and what we are after we've lost someone that has shaped so much or been so much of our identity in life. And in the initial stages of grief, the pain at times can be hard to be just around people, let alone coming into an environment like this where the sentiments and the songs being sung and the words of the song and the presence of God can just trigger so many emotions that at times can be hard to handle and hard to control. And one thing I want to say to you is you don't always need to here. 
It's okay to be a little bit undone when you come into God's presence. That's okay with us. See, grief can keep us absent from the gathering of God's people because it's just hard. And grief, as we said last week, can cause that sensation of feeling numb. It means that there are times that we can be physically present, but spiritually and emotionally absent. And we talk about being absent from the gathering of God's people and we immediately think about not turning up at church, but actually we can be geographically in the room, but emotionally and spiritually we checked out a long time ago. We're absent. And what we also have to remember is that grief is the emotional response attached to any experience of loss. So it's not just the loss of loved ones that trigger grief, it's the loss of anything. And there are many specific experiences of loss that can cause us to distance ourselves from the church. For example, when friends leave or move on to other fellowships. When change comes with what we've been familiar with and suddenly there's a loss of stability and familiarity. When people change, when staff change, when leadership change, when the pastor changes. When we step back from roles and responsibilities and lose that sense of contribution and input. When health begins to limit or impact our ability or our capacity even just to join in or plug in or get involved. When work changes, when there's financial issues, when there's emotional mental health challenges, when, when trust is lost or damaged within the church because of heart or because of perceived heart. We could go on and on and on and live many different experiences of change and loss that can trigger grief and cause a distance. But the truth is, grief can cause a distance from church. However, reality is, it's not always fear and it's not always grief. Sometimes it's just choice. Choice due to the busyness of life, due to family commitments, energy levels, hobbies, other interests, other commitments. The boys get football, the girls get dancing, the boys get dancing, the girls get football. <laughs> there's that caravan, there's that job that needs done. There's those things that we need to do, there's that social thing we need to get to. Sometimes it's other stuff, sometimes it's just a lack of desire. For these and many other reasons, there are reasons and there are moments when we choose not to connect at church on a regular or every so often basis. But this morning as we read these scriptures, we have to be challenged by what we read. Because God's design and intention is that we live out our Christian faith, pursuing a relationship with him on an individual level through personal devotion and holiness and witness. But also we pursue a relationship with God through a relationship with his church. Because it's through the church that God desires to release revelations of himself, glimpses of salvation, deep ministry in our innermost being, empowering, envisioning with purpose. He does that through the church. Why specifically through the church? Because he realizes these things through the teaching and the preaching of his word, through the ministry of the gifts, through the witness of the gospel, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the saints one to another. So let me ask you this morning, are you actively pursuing an active relationship with God? And are you pursuing an active relationship with God through a relationship with his church? How's your connection? Are there reasons why maybe your connection isn't what it once was or isn't what it should be? Is there possibly an element of fear there, possibly the presence of grief, or is it just a choice, consciously or subconsciously? Whatever it is, bring it to him. Let him minister to it. Release it because he's calling us to connect with him and connect with his church. 
Now, Thomas wasn't present when Jesus manifested the disciples. And he didn't take it too well. Didn't take it too well when they said, we've seen Jesus. Here's what he said. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas doubts. Now, why is his go-to emotion doubt? Why in that moment is doubt his go-to? Why doubt these people? He's spent three years with them. They've been living in each other's pockets. You would think that trust and friendship and relationship was high. Why doubt the information that they shared and that they affirmed as truth? Well, we could argue maybe he was angry at missing out on the encounter with Jesus. We could maybe point to the presence of fear or play the grief card again because these are all valid things that cultivate doubt. And we often give Thomas bad press in doubting. But I'm not really sure we should. We give him so much bad press, oh, doubting Thomas. Tisk, tisk, tisk. But I'm not actually sure we should. Because what we see here is that Thomas refused to believe what he hadn't seen. Actually, he refused to say that he understood what he didn't. He refused to say that he understood that which he didn't understand. He refused to say that he believed what he didn't. He didn't go with the flow. He had his own mind. Hats off, Thomas. Hats off to Thomas. Integrity was a core value, and Thomas refused to just fake it till he maked it. He refused just to blindly believe and go along with the, the flow or with the hype or with everything else that was going on. No integrity was so key for him. And this wasn't really out of context for Thomas. If you remember in the story of Lazarus in John 11, Jesus is sent word, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he hears that, he stays where he is for a few more days. And then he says, let's go to Judea. And the disciples are like, listen, Jesus, the last time you were there, they tried to take you out. They tried to stone you to death. We don't think you should do that. And he's like, look, look, Lazarus is dead and we're going to raise him. Thomas's response, aye, great, let's all go and die with him. That's what he says, let's all go and die with him. Brilliant. I want to stone you to death. Sure, let's go to Judea, Jesus. Great idea. We're all going to go and die with Lazarus. He just, he calls it out. There's brutal honesty there. I doubt very many other people would have had the guts to speak to Jesus like that, but Thomas did. He was the one that said what he was thinking. He was the one that said what everyone else was thinking, but didn't have the guts to speak it. John 14, Jesus has got a cracking sermon. He's in the midst of a brilliant speech and he's delivering it with great gusto. Trust in the Lord, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I will come back and get you that you will also be with me where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas, eh, point of order. Actually, we don't know where you're going, so how could we possibly know the way? Jesus is like giving it. And he's like, listen mate, unless you tell us where you're going, we're never going to be able to work out the route. He just calls it out. He just says it as it is. 
He's an all or nothing kind of guy. He's strong-willed, he knew his own mind. And in this moment in John's gospel, he doubted what he'd been told. Now, why is Thomas's doubt such a big deal? It is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is because of what the scripture teaches us about doubt. Let's show some things about doubt. Doubt is a barrier to the supernatural. Jesus says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done. Now Jesus is talking here about mountains moving into the sea. He's talking about the natural order being replaced by the supernatural, the supernatural act of God. And he says, the absence of doubt will see that happen, which would suggest then that the presence of doubt won't. Now, if we link that to what comes next, doubt is a barrier to answered prayer. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. So when we pray, we've got to trust God for what we're praying for and it will be released. Now, as we say these two points, understand we're not going down the hyper faith stuff here that God has a dial that he looks at and until your faith reaches a certain level, he's not going to respond to you. So if he hasn't responded, it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. That's not what this is about. I think rather what's been said here is not about the level of faith and the naming and claiming it nonsense, right? I think what he's saying here is that when we pray, we've got to trust God and believe in what we're asking for because see, if we don't, then we're not going to recognize it when God answers it. If we've got doubt there and we're not believing God for it and we don't believe that he's going to do what we're asking him, then why would we recognize the answer when it comes? Why would we see the supernatural move of God if actually we don't believe in it? We don't believe for it. We've got to have trust. I think that's the point that's been made. Doubt sank Peter. Jesus turns up walking on the water and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And he says, come. And he gets out the boat and starts walking on the water towards Jesus. And then it says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. This is interesting. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? So we read the first sentence and see it was his fear that sunk him, but Jesus says actually what happened here was doubt. Doubt stopped Peter walking with Christ. Doubt interfered with the way that he was supposed to function in that moment. Doubt sunk Peter. Doubt unanchors the soul. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Wow, he shoots from the hip too. These are big words. And initially, if I'm honest, when you make statements like doubt is a barrier to answer prayer, it kind of grates a wee bit because you're like, hey, God's bigger than that and he can do whatever he wants to do. But the thing is, here again, we're told if there's doubt, don't expect to see the activity of God. It's quite a, a stark thing that's presented to us here. And I think it is just down to that thing again of it's about recognizing we pray and we believe and we ask and we seek and we trust that God will be God and do what you'll do, then we'll recognize when he begins to move. But the other side of things here is we're told that doubt in the presence of the soul unanchors it and it makes it unstable, which makes forward journeying difficult. Doubt steals your voice. 
Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah is burning incense in the temple. Gabriel turns up and says, you're going to have a son. Here's the amazing things God's going to do through it. And Zechariah goes, well, how do I know that this is going to happen? And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you. In other words, the voice you hear is not my voice, it's the voice of God. These words are the word of, of God. But here's the thing, because he doubted the voice of God, God muted Zechariah's voice. Now think about it. If Zechariah had come out at that moment and said to everybody, you'll never believe what just happened. The angel came. This is what he looked like. This is what he said. This is what God's about to do. This is what God is up to. But here's the thing, because he doubted the voice of God, he couldn't be the voice of God in that moment. Doubt stole his voice. And finally, doubt is a tactic of the enemy. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The serpent saddles up alongside Eve. The serpent, which we understand, personifies the devil. And he says, did God really say you can't eat fruit from any tree? Nah, it's not that if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. It's just that you'll become like him. See, what happened was the voice of the devil caused doubt. She doubted the word of God. She doubted the voice of God. She doubted the command of God. She doubted the integrity of God. She doubted the goodness of God. She doubted the, the intentions of God, the, the, the motives of God. She doubted his trustworthiness. She doubted his faithfulness. Doubt can be a tactic of the enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that every single doubt is a satanic attack. Don't hear that. But the truth of the matter is there's moments in which when God speaks to us or we get a word or there's a moment of ministry and then after the Shekinah is left and the dust settles back in the ordinary again, we think, did I really hear that? Did God really say that to me? Did that really happen? Am I really free? Am I really healed? Did that really change? Did I really experience that? That's doubt. And that's the moments when Jesus does the parable of the seed and the sower, where the seed falls on the path and the birds of the air swoop down and steal it so it's not there to produce fruit anymore. Doubt causes what God is doing to stay at the surface rather than embedding in deep and it's removed from our souls. Doubt can be a tactic of the enemy. Again, I have to say it. I'm not saying that every single doubt is the devil speaking or is a satanic attack, but he does use it. Now, what is doubt? Doubt is not necessarily unbelief. Doubt is faith burdened with uncertainty. And that's important. We see it in the man in Mark 9, 24, whose son has a spirit driven out of him. 
And he comes and he says, if it's possible, can you help my son? And the man says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. I believe that you can do it. I believe that it's possible. I'm just not certain that you're going to do it. Faith is belief, or, is, or doubt, sorry, is faith burdened with uncertainty. Peter's walking on water shows it as well. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. And he tells him to come, and faith got him out of the boat. Faith saw him walking across the water, but in that moment when the wind began to pick up and the waves began to lap at his feet, suddenly uncertainty saw him beginning to sink. He had faith, but he was just uncertain in that moment. Thomas is one who has faith, but his faith is burdened with uncertainty because although he's missing from the disciples' group when Jesus turned up, and even although he's doubting what they've told him, he's still hanging around with them a week later when Jesus turns up a second time. He doesn't throw in the faith towel altogether. He doesn't say, guys, listen, we've been through a lot, but if you guys are going to start propagating this stuff that he's risen and he's turned up alive and all that, I'm out. He could have. I don't believe what you've just said. I'm not sure about this, so if this is the way we're going to go, I'm out, guys. No, a week later, he's still hanging out with them. He's still connected with God's people and they would have been praying, I reckon. They would have been probably chatting about scripture, talking about the teachings of Jesus. Thomas is still plugging in with these guys even though he has doubts in his mind. He has faith, but his faith is burdened with uncertainty. He's still just not sure. And to Peter walking on water, to a sense the man in Mark's gospel with the son and to Thomas, Jesus responds to doubt gently, but firmly. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came among and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. One week later, Jesus turns up to Thomas under the exact same conditions and announces peace. Here's the purpose of this visitation. Peace, peace be with you. He's bringing peace to Thomas's doubts. And in this encounter, he addresses Thomas's doubts. Now notice that Jesus turns up and immediately addresses Thomas's doubt. Thomas expressed his doubt a week ago. A week ago. And there's nothing to suggest that when Jesus turned up, Thomas went down the whole thing again of, listen, I see you're standing there, but unless I see the hands, fella, and put my finger in the holes and my hand in the side, I refuse to believe. There's nothing to suggest that he voices his doubt all over again. He voiced it a week ago. Jesus turns up and his opening statement is to address that which Thomas expressed seven days previous, which shows that even though it was a week ago, Jesus heard it. He knew about it, and he turns up to address it. In fact, given the fact that this is the only dialogue that the scripture records in this moment, in this manifestation of Jesus, then it suggests this is the sole reason why Jesus turned up. He came in response to Thomas's doubt. He turned up to interact 
with Thomas's doubt, which means he took responsibility for Thomas's doubt. It's natural at times to have doubts. We all have them. Faith burdened with uncertainty. Sometimes I have them. This morning, standing up and saying, I think this might be what God is saying. I believe, but I'm still trying to figure it out. Loads of moments in prayer, in ministry, in a hospice when someone's saying, would you pray that God would perform a miracle and take all the cancer away? I have faith to believe that God can do that and God is able to do that. I'm just not certain that he's going to in that moment. There are moments when we all face doubt It's okay and it's natural to have doubts. The things that we experience, the things that we go through can cause doubts to arise within us and there isn't a Christian on the face of the earth that hasn't at some point struggled with or faced doubt and if they told you they never have, then their biggest issue is lying. (laughs) We all live with doubts that niggle at the heart of us about the various things that we've gone through and experienced or think about. And here is the amazing truth. Regardless of when that doubt arose within us, regardless of when those doubts took up residence within us, Jesus knows all about them. He hears them and he's ready and willing to address them. He's taken responsibility for the doubts within and he's ready to minister to them. And if you look back over your journey so far, if you look into this now moment that we're in right now, and if you're willing to even keep your eyes open for it, as you journey from this point forward, you will see that there have been, there are, and there will be moments when God sets up encounters with himself, when he sets up encounters with his word, even when he sets up encounters with his people to address the doubts that arise within us. We just have to be ready and willing to embrace them when he does. See, when we say Jesus took responsibility for Thomas's doubt, what we mean is this. Only Jesus had what was necessary to answer the doubt. Only Jesus could do it. The disciples couldn't answer Thomas's doubt. Thomas couldn't do it. He's like, I can't just flick a switch and make myself believe. I, I can't just turn my thinking around and say, right, okay, I believe that now. Only Jesus had what was needed. And Jesus had no issue in responding with what was needed for Thomas's doubt. Let me read to you Thomas's doubt again. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus turns up and says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Only Jesus has what is needed to respond to that doubt. Thomas didn't need a debate with the disciples. He didn't need a theological discourse. He just needed an encounter with Christ. Sometimes we need to bring our doubts into an encounter with Jesus because he's all that's needed to address the doubt that lingers on the soul. Sometimes what we need is not doctrinal debates and theological discourses. Sometimes it's not sermons or the reasoning of other well-meaning Christians. Sometimes what we need is not to read another book listen to another podcast, it's just to have an encounter with the living God in which we come with complete vulnerability and let our doubt breathe in his presence. Jesus turned up to Thomas and his appearance would have been enough, wouldn't it? Okay, you're standing there, I now believe. 
Jesus took it a step further. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. He invited Thomas to tangibly explore the answer to his doubt. He took him on a journey. He could have just turned up and said, here I am. Ta-da. Now, stop believing and move on. Stop doubting and move on. But he didn't. He says, here I am. My presence communicates that I'm alive. But now explore the answer to your doubts. Do you know what makes God so amazing? Is that he's bigger than our doubts. Which means he's not offended by them. And he's not limited by them. God is not limited by your doubt. It doesn't stop him being God just because you're not sure. It doesn't stop him moving in a situation because you're not sure what he's going to do. He's bigger than all of that. And when we have doubts, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't chastise. He invites us on a journey to explore the answer to our doubts. He journeys our souls to a place where our doubt finds their anchor in his presence. We've got to be willing to take the handbrake of doubt off of our souls and let them journey with God to the place of discovering his truth. And when we say that, it's important that we allow the soul to go to a place of discovering his truth and not what we perceive to be the truth. Lord, I'm not sure about this. Could you just come and confirm that I'm right in not being sure about that? No, no. It's not about manipulating God to fit our truth. It's about letting God minister his truth. Letting him call out where truth is and what truth is. Because he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Notice the patience of Jesus with Thomas. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. It's not wrathful chastisement, but a patient. Let's explore your doubt and bring you to a place where you're beyond doubt. Jesus was patient with doubt, and so should we be. And that's really important because in our church environments, we're all for, this is what you should believe, now believe it. This is the gospel. Now, make a decision to believe it right now. Put your faith and trust in it right this minute. You must now believe what we believe. And we journey with people and, and, and they come and they present their beliefs and we're like, well, you're wrong and I'm right. You must believe what I believe. Actually, we need to be patient with those that do. The scripture calls us to be merciful with those that doubt. In fact, that's the exact command in Jude. Be merciful to those that doubt. We need to respond like God does to those who have doubts, not preach them to a place of conforming to our belief system, not chastise them and bind them to a lost eternity unless they immediately banish their doubt and believe but simply to bring them into an encounter with Jesus where he journeys them towards truth. Because what we've got to remember is we present the truth, but it's not our presentation that is the truth. It's what we're presenting, and that doesn't belong to us. That belongs to him. So the journey of bringing folk into an experience of that is not our journey. It's his. It's his work. 
As we look through this passage, there's so much that encourages us in terms of our doubts. He knows them, he sees them, he hears them, he's willing to journey us to a place of, of ministering to them. But there's also encouragement for those that live with those who doubt. If you live with those who doubt, if you live with those or have friendship circles or are connected and family members with those who don't quite do the whole Jesus thing, don't quite get the whole church thing, here's some encouragement for you. They may have their doubts and as they voice them, Jesus hears them. He knows all about their doubt and he's ready and willing to address them. And he takes responsibility for their doubt. So that means it's not yours. It is not your responsibility to journey those that doubt to a place of absolute belief. It's his. So this morning, if you live with those or connected with those that doubt, this morning, may the burden of their doubt lift from your soul in Jesus' name because it's not your burden to carry any longer. It's his. He knows about their doubt. He's heard their doubt. He's ready and willing to minister to it. He takes responsibility for responding to their doubt. He is patiently journeying them to a place of addressing that doubt. He is setting up encounters in their lives that will bring them from a place of doubt to a place of faith. So take your hands off and let them. And release yourself from the worry about the timing of it and the progress of it. Jesus has got this. He is setting up encounters. He is journeying with them. This is his bag. Let him be God. Your job is just encourage and support and love that individual. His job is to transform doubt to faith. Jesus began the journey of bringing Thomas from doubt to faith. Doubt was not to be part of his makeup. Doubt was going to rob him of his identity. He was to be a man of faith. He was to take the gospel to the world. He was to see signs and wonders accompanying the proclamation of the word. Jesus began to remove that which was robbing him of his destiny. Jesus will always get to work in our lives to remove that which robs us of our destiny and of our identity. We just need to learn to embrace that and to perceive that and not put back in place that which he is removing. He removed doubt from Thomas to release him into purpose. And as he turns up and he presents and he allows him to journey and to explore, look at what Thomas says. My Lord and my God. Thomas went from not being sure to going all the way in faith. You could say that doubt leads to deeper faith. And I'm not saying we should all start doubting because that's going to get us to deeper faith. But my point is, we shouldn't ever operate with blind faith. We should never just go with the flow and follow the hype and follow the crowd. Just flick the switch and just go with everyone else. We need to come to a place where it's okay to have faith that is burdened with uncertainty. Yeah. 
and to allow our souls the time to explore that which is uncertain, to allow our hearts the chance for God to come and transition us to a place where actually we explore the answer to our doubt and the result then, rather than just believe in something for the sake of it, even though we're not very sure, the result then is we've not been sure and we've journeyed with God to a place where he's addressed and answered that. So now we're anchored to that and we're in a much deeper place and secure place than when we first began. Doubt does lead to deeper faith. But doubt leads to deeper faith if we're willing to take the handbrake of doubt off of the soul and allow the soul to journey into his presence and encounter truth. Today, in this moment, there is so much that God has spoken but just come to him and let him minister to you. And if you have doubt, take the handbrake off. Bring his soul, your soul into his presence. Let your doubts breathe and watch as he journeys you to a place where he takes you deeper in him as he reveals truth and brings you to a place of security. Let's pray together.